Hey, good morning, Veritas. Good morning. Um, yeah, we are going through the Apostles' Creed. We might have some friends and, and family visiting uh, with us. We're glad you're here as well this weekend. We're, we're doing this series where we're taking phrases out of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, for generations, this, is, this has been a, a call for unity, like across the ages and across all of geography. These are the things that, that Christians hold to be true and, and rally around. Uh, it's also been almost like a, a catechism, like teaching new believers, like, hey, it, it, now that you've started this journey of, of faith in Christ, here's, here's a summary of what we believe, right? So that's what we're doing. We're just choosing to pull over and see that, that stuff that's contained in the Apostles' Creed. Is it really from, from this book or not? We're not studying the Creed. We're actually studying the truths that the, that the Creed points to. And as we do that this morning, guys, um, in, in order to frame in the phrase that we're going to be covering this morning, I want us to acknowledge together that all of us, as we, as we step into this world, as, as we take our first breaths um, as infants and continue to grow into adulthood, there are these questions that are, they just seem to be placed deep into our DNA, that across the board we have these questions that we seek answers to. There's three of them. The first one is, where did I come from? Where did I come from? We've got this haunting realization that we didn't just happen, that there's, there's some history, there's some storyline. Where did I come from? We ask that question. How, how did I get here, right? We also ask, well, what is required of me right here in the present, right? How did I get here? Well, now I'm here on this, on this planet taking breaths. Man, is there something required of me? And then that leads naturally to the, to the third question, that is, man, where do I go from here? What's, what's my future? Where, where's this journey taking me, ultimately? So you guys, just, just so you know, every religion seeks to answer those questions. Why? Because everyone across the planet is asking these questions. So every religion, every philosophy, right? Because even if you reject the idea of God... You can't ignore these questions. So the philosophers are, are, are bantering around these questions. And even the most atheistic, like committed materialist, there is no supernatural kind of person out there, still is bumping up against these questions that people are asking. Well, then where did we come from? Where are we going? What am I supposed to be doing right now, right? So I'm just saying, it doesn't matter your religious, irreligious background or whatever. These are the questions that every human is, is asking. So then we've got this choice, right? We've got this choice when these questions come. Either I could um, bumble around on my own and try to find the answers on my own, right? Um, usually that ends up in futility because I've got the question rolling around in there, not much of an answer. And so we can spin our wheels and ask ourselves and end up in futility. You know, and you've got to ask that basic question, you know, well, how's that working out for you, <laughs> Right? Or we could start asking each other, hey, can you help me with these? And basically, then you've got just the blind leading the blind at that point, like none, none of us have. Or we can do what actually the creed is pointing us to do, is to recognize, oh, wait, there's a maker of heaven and earth. Why don't I ask the creator? If these questions are in me, maybe they've been placed in me by this higher power, by a God who's out there. Why don't I ask what the creed says about God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth? So the creed points us to the, the beginning of the answers to these questions. Where do I come from? 
a father, not just a maker, but a father. Who's not just some, some, you know, some God far removed from us that just kind of gets us spinning and then stays aloof. No, there's a father who wants to have a relationship with. There's just a maker and a father. What's required of me in the present? We've been talking about that over the last few weeks. To believe that our father loved us so much that he sent his son to live, to die, to be crucified, right? We just said that in the creed, to be crucified, to be buried. But to, to rise again and, and to believe that this is the sin bearer, this is, the, this is our hope, this is the one that can get us to whatever that is in the future. And what is my future? Well, that's the part that we're going to be looking at today in, from the creed, but deeply anchored in our Bible. So week six is where we're at in, in this series And the phrase that we're going to be looking at today is, from which he will come, the he being Jesus, from which he will come to judge the living and the dead. We'll be talking about the phrase about judgment. We believe that Jesus did come, that he died, buried, rose again, ascended, and now that he's ascended, there's another chapter yet to be written about his work, and that is his work as as judge. Now here's the deal about this, guys. To this point, everything that we've been looking at in the creed is pretty palatable, pretty agreeable. Like almost anybody could nod along and be like, oh, that's sweet. Yeah, there's a God. Oh, he's a father. That's pretty cool. Oh, Jesus came and died for us. That's sweet. I like all that stuff, right? So you could get almost anybody to nod along. And then we get to this phrase. Oh, no, that Jesus that certainly did come and give his life for us, he's coming again to judge and all of a sudden we can kind of wince a little bit right like wait a minute wait a minute i'm okay talking about god and father and jesus and nice of him to die for me that's cool wait what are you talking about he's gonna judge me um in vst we we uh started our our journey in the veritas school of theology and this is one of the quotes that we looked at together from j.i packer i want you to see this quote together packer says this in his book knowing god says, do you believe in divine judgment? By which I mean, do you believe in a God who acts as our judge? Many, it seems, do not. Oh, speak to them of a God as a father, a friend, a helper, one who loves us despite of our weaknesses and folly and sin, and their faces light up. You're on their wavelength at, at once. But speak to them of God as judge? And they frown and shake their heads. Their minds recoil from such an idea. They find it repellent and unworthy. But there are few things stressed more strongly in the Bible than the reality of God's work as judge. So we might not like this one as much, but I'm telling you, you can't read your Bible and come away without bumping into this this truth. So my task this morning, guys is to show you that the Bible most emphatically points us not just to the maker, our father, the story of Jesus, but this certain story of a judgment to come. Okay, so to do that, we're actually going to start in Genesis, and we're going to make our way all the way to the Revelation. So pack it in. You're here for the rest of the weekend. Um, No, but I do want you to go back with me to the book of Genesis. We've done this before, but I want you to see this again because I want you to see these truths, you guys, are absolutely deeply rooted in the earliest pages of our Bible. So Genesis chapter 1 is the creation of all things, and it's uh, full of splendor and glory. 
When you get to Genesis 2, you've got a real focus on that crowning point of creation, the creation of mankind. And so you've got the creation of all things, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. You kind of pull back and just really drill into this creation of mankind, which is also just full of, of glory and wonder. But there's a point down at the, toward the end of cha- or middle point of chapter 2, verse 15, where it says this. The Lord God took the man, placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. So I just want you to know, this is before sin ever enters the world, as it doesn't happen until chapter 3. In chapter 2, God is already presenting himself, not just as the creator of all things, but as a father and as a judge, right? I've got some rules, and, and here's what you can do. I'm going to give you a task. This is your task. Now, it was a glorious task because this Garden of Eden, can you imagine? I mean, I love working outside. I, I, I love tending stuff and, you know, putting trees in the ground and trimming. I love all that stuff. But can you imagine Eden, like perfect Eden? What a blast that would be. Oh, that's my job. Oh, twist my arm, you know. So, but he was given a task and a commandment, a very clear commandment. Look, there's one tree that you're not allowed to eat from. Now, sometimes when we get this image of, of this moment, we, we get it wrong, and sometimes even artists do a great disservice at this moment. We see this garden with all these piddly little trees and a little weak little, and then you've just got this glorious tree right in the middle. Like one of my favorite trees on the planet is a baobab tree from Zambia, from, from Africa, all over Africa. And you, you maybe recognize it because they have massive, massive trunks, and they just like a cylinder going up, like a pillar going up, and then uh, hardly any leaves relative to the size of this massive tree. It's just glorious, just almost magical kind of tree. I'm just saying, like, you might imagine, like, oh, all these little, you know, piddly little, I don't know, red buds or something, and then this is colossal, you know. No, that's not the picture at all. The picture of the Garden of Eden is every tree is just bursting with life. Every tree smells aromatic and has fruit just bearing all over the place. And there's just one of those trees, not bigger, not more glorious, not more beautiful, not fruit that tastes any better, just one tree. And he's like, oh, no, you can't eat from that, that one tree. Well, we know the story. We've talked about it even over these last weeks. They, at one point, make a beeline for that one restricted tree, and they had to, like, plow through to try to get to it, right, because there's so many trees that are available to them. Do that, and so go, go with me to the end of chapter 3 as a result of them disobeying the one restrictive command that they had. The very last verse of chapter 3 says, God drove the man out, stationed the cherubim, the, these, these angels, and the flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. He's been, he, he has just said earlier, Lest they make their way now to the tree of life. That was the tree of good and evil. Lest they make to the tree of life and live eternally in that state of fallenness. I don't want them to get there. Banishes them. So now all of a sudden we've got mankind banished from, from God. From the presence of God. But before they left, earlier in chapter 3, we, we looked at this one also a few weeks ago. But look at 3.15. This is the promise that was embedded in this whole story of, of uh, betrayal and condemnation, but this word of hope in 3.15, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, Jesus Christ, this is the promise, he will strike your head, enemy, and you will strike his heel. So, there is a day 
coming when the enemy, the deceiver, and his seed, his progeny, his offspring, those that are gathered around him, will be crushed, will be condemned by a coming judge. That storyline is set in these opening pages. There will come a day where that enemy that kind of baited mankind into that awful sin, he will be crushed along with his seed, those, those that follow him, okay? That coming day of judgment is coming. Storyline set in our opening pages. Now, if you'll go with me to the Psalms, I want you to go to Psalm 2, and you can see how much Bible we're skipping, right, to go from Genesis to Psalm. We're going to go and, and uh, go all the way to Psalm 2. But I want you to know all those pages that we're skipping, this thread continues all the way through and will continue all the way through to Revelation. But we're just going to, we don't have time to cover all that, but I want you to go to Psalm 2 because it's a beautiful illustration of this big storyline that's woven through the whole Bible. So Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth, they take their stand. The rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. That anointed one, right? That's all the way back to that Genesis 3 promise, that one that will come, right? So again, see that thread? They're, they're conspiring against the Lord, against his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains, throw their ropes off of us. <laughs> the one enthroned in heaven just laughs. The, the Lord kind of snickers, you know, ridicules them. And he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. Oh no, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I'll declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, listen up, right? Be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe. Rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. But all who take refuge in him are happy. Man, this, this is an epic psalm, and it's positioned right early on in the psalm so that you'd bump up against it if you just say i'm going to read through the psalms you're going to come to this one and and, and read this storyline of, of the whole bible right here right so the big picture of this psalm is the the world is just raging right and kind of thumping its its collective chest against god we bow to no one right this is kind of the the collective voice of of the world saying we bow to no one right no one can tell us what to do no one's gonna you know push us around kind of thing. And the one enthroned in heaven just finds it kind of amusing, right? I mean, picture this. As I was musing on, on this, this image, I thought, have you ever, like I've got a bunch of grandkids, and uh, wh whether they were my kids and now the grandkids, when they're little and they want to arm wrestle you, you know, you've all had those moments where you're, or, or maybe wrestling in the middle of the floor or whatever. So just picture the arm wrestling thing. And, and the little like three-year-old you know, is there and is like, Come on, let's go. And, you know, and they're just sweating. And you're like, oh, oh, you know. And then you're watching them just think they're in. You go, ah, you know, like. And then all of a sudden you're like, <laughs> wham, you know, of course. <laughs> because you know the whole time, right? Like, it's, it's all, it's comical. They are just sweating. They think they're beating you. They just think you, you know, like they just imagine themselves the great victor, right? That's kind of almost the picture of Psalm 2, isn't it? 
like all these nations think, take you on, you know what I mean? And, and God's like, that's cute. You know what, right? Like for a while, Snickers, oh, isn't that cute? Look at these little ants trying to take me down or whatever. But guys, don't, don't let kind of the, the laughable side of that um, diminish what's going on here. Because at one point, God is going to say, yeah, actually enough. And there's a judgment. There's a judgment that's going to come down. And we've got a choice to make at that point. This, this is the warning of Psalm 2. In this beautiful collection of psalms, um, there's a strong warning. You've got a choice. And Veritas, I'm saying, you and I, it, this psalm is calling us to recognize, we've got a choice right now. We can either run into the arms of, of the one who died and rose again, the anointed. We can either, in fact, some of your translations, instead of pay homage to the son, it, it, it's literally in Hebrew, kiss the son. You can embrace the son. You can run to the son. You can run to the anointed one, the king, run into his arms for safety and a refuge, right? There you will find, look at that, the very last line, all who take refuge in him are happy. You can even find delight and a refuge and safety and security and all your longings come true by running to him or be crushed with the deceiver, with the enemy, and all who scoff and ignore the Lord. Those are the choices that Psalm 2 offers us, right? Either run to the sun and find joy and peace and security or ignore him. Join the cacophony of voices rebelling against him and find that you are judged. All right, I want to take another big leap forward in our Bibles. Go all the way to Matthew chapter 25 now. So again, you're going to see a big old chunk of Bible that we skipped to go from Psalms all the way to Matthew. If you had done it page by page... You would have seen this thread continue and echo through, but now we're going to go to Matthew 25, and I want you to see this very memorable story that Jesus gives toward the end of his earthly life as he's trying to really capture what's going on to those that are following him, and he gives this beautiful story. He says in Matthew 25, verse 31, okay, 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. I just want to stop there for a second. Understand that imagery, right? A throne. Kingship. We've seen all the way from Genesis 3. We see it repeated in Psalm 2. This idea that there's a, a king that's going to be installed. And he's sitting at, at this point. Jesus saying, at one point the Son of Man is going to come. It's going to be the end of all things. And he's going to sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king, here he is even referred to as a king. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now he goes on to explain the, the way that they've ordered their lives. I want you to go all the way down to verse 41. In verse 41 he says, and he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed. Not blessed. Those on his right are blessed. No, on, on the left, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then he talks about the way they had ordered their lives. And the very last verse of this whole thing, verse 46 says, 
and they will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So guys, once again, we have this very clear picture of what the coming judgment is going to be. There's the king enthroned, same theme. The king enthroned, all of humanity in front, and there are just two choices. There's not multiple choice here. You're either on one side or the other. You're either on the right or the left. You're one or the other, right? And what you can see here, in the past, God prepared a place for that serpent, that deceiver, that one that coaxed and baited humanity into following him rather than God. So in the past, God created a place for him and all who would follow him, his seed, his descendants, right? Those are the ones that are cursed there in verse 41. They will suffer punishment. They will, they will be pushed out, almost like at the end of Genesis 3. They will be pushed away from the presence of God. Or, on the other hand, in the past, God prepared a place for all who would flee to the king. That Psalm 2 idea. They would kiss the sun. They would come to the He prepared a place, and all those are blessed. I love that. The king says, Come, you who are blessed. So some I'm saying away, but this judge is also saying, come, you who are, are blessed. And in the present, the reason Jesus is giving this story right here, because in the present, that's what's happened. He's prepared these places ahead of time, because in the present, he's saying, what choice are you going to make? What side are you going to be on? You've got a binary choice, okay? You've got one choice or another. You, you, there's no middle ground no neutral, you got to make a choice. So now what we're going to do this morning is, in our last passage, look, look into the future to see what that day will actually be. So I want you to go now all the way to the end. Go to the book of Revelation with me. Revelation chapter 20. And again, see how many pages you skipped to get there. But go to Revelation 20 and verse 11. And I want you to see an even clearer picture of that day when Jesus sits on the throne. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. There again, that imagery. One seated on it, earth and heaven fled from his presence. No place was found for them. So this is clearly the end of all things. And I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, right? That's very Matthew 25 language. Standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death in Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, Melinda, do we have the second picture of, of the highlighted words? Okay, let's, let's turn to that one because I want you to see something that if you read too quickly, you might miss in this book and books, all this moment, what, what's going on here. But there's a real clear distinction. On the one hand, you've got this idea of books being opened. And, and he repeats that again about the books being opened. And then as you read that more carefully, you realize that in, in the books are written all of the deeds of your life, of everybody's life. Because he says right there, you will be judged according uh, to your works. Th those books are open, and you're judged according to their works by what was written in the books, plural books, right? So there's the throne, final judgment, and there's the books. Or, on the 
converse of that, you've got a singular book. Oh, you've got the books opened. Oh, but you've got this other singular book open. And what's contained in that? The book of life? Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life. So to do this, I asked Izzy to make me a picture. I wish I could say that I drew this, but I want you to see this image that, that I think might, might be really helpful. This, this is kind of a picture. Man, I wish I could draw. Every time I see people, I can draw. Anyway, um, there's the, thro- the throne, right? So here's the, here's the binary choice that we have. We stand before the throne. We stand before Jesus on that great day. And either we will give an account for everything that we have done as are recorded in the books. Or we will find that our name, singularly, is written in the book of life. Now, I, I, I want to follow up on that because here, here are the big points of this, okay? The first thing that you have to recognize about this whole picture that, again, is consistent through the whole Bible is this. We will all stand before the throne of Jesus Christ. The maker of heaven and earth is going to call all of us to an account. In the very same way that our great-great-grandfathers, you know, Adam and Eve, were given charge to do what they're supposed to do, and, and then he was going to come and see, oh, have you done? Oh, you didn't do what I told you to do. Oh, you did the exact opposite, right? There's a day of reckoning. It's not just abstract rules being thrown out. No, there's, there's a, going to come a day where the one who gave us life, breathed life into us, we will stand before and we will have to give an account for the life that he gave us. Now, on that day, uh, either we will take the punishment for every sin that we've committed. That's the one choice, right? Represented in the books, that whole pile of books over there. When we stand before him, we will give an account for our works. It's not like you stand before God someday and you are responsible for all the sins of the world. No, no, no. Your sins. Now, I want you to feel the weight and gravity of this. There's a song. In fact, we just sang it last week, and I actually made a special request that we would sing it again this week because it so fits. Actually, uh, James wrote it. Um, But here, here are the lyrics. There was a cup filled to the brim. I had filled it up with all my sin. This cup of wrath was to be poured on me. I stood accused. I had no plea. That's a confession that says, oh, that cup of condemnation, that wasn't made just generally for people. That was filled with the condemnation that I deserve. That comes right out of the Bible. The the clearest passage for that is Romans chapter 2. I really want you to understand this. This is so important. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, it says this. Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment is revealed, he will repay each one according to his works. Guys, I don't know if you've ever considered this deeply enough. But when you stand before God one day, all of your sins that you have committed, all of them, are going to be brought back up and you will face the charges that you singularly deserve. So here's the the reason that this is important. We sin so often 
and kind of get away with it, right? That we can start fooling ourselves into thinking, oh, that's just the way it is. You just think of it in the most kind of innocent of ways. You're driving through Cedar Rapids. You know that they like to pick people up for speeding, but you just fly through Cedar Rapids and you think, dude, I did it again. Are you kidding? And then you get one of those envelopes in the mail a few weeks later, right? I, not from personal experience. I've heard this is true. Um, I've gotten these envelopes. Oh, anyway, and there's your car, and there's your license plate, and there's the speed you were going as you flew through that. Like, at some point, you end up having to give an account. But you think, you fooled yourself for a few days into thinking, sweet, I got away. All those other punks, they're getting pulled over, not this guy. Whoosh, you know? What I'm saying is we get used to that in so many ways in life that we actually think that maybe we're just going to get away with all the stuff that we've done in this life. What Romans is, is telling us is, oh, no, you, you actually will give an account. There's a maybe even scarier verse about this from the lips of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, he says this, Matthew 12, 36. He says, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to give an account for every careless word that they speak. Okay, I want that one to just settle in on you a minute. Every careless word. Careless word, like empty word. Hurtful word. Any word you gave that actually wasn't helpful, instead is either useless or cruel or mean. Hurtful. Do you know how many words you've spoken that are careless words? I can't even recall them. I'm sure I can't recall them. Oh, but they're recorded. <laughs> Here's what I'm saying. At, at the end of Romans, you know what he says? He goes, at that day, we're going to be standing there, and the list is going to be given, and we are going to be so stunned into silence. It said, every mouth will be closed. Every mouth will just be closed standing there because you are going to know at that moment, totally guilty. You, you won't even venture a justification, because it'll be so dead to rights that those books are absolutely true. And there you are. What I'm saying is that day of judgment, you can either stand there and take all the punishment that you deserve, or, here's the glorious truth, I get kind of choked up even thinking about this, or you will flee to Jesus and enter into life. <laughs> you'll, you'll flee to Jesus and, and you'll find that you, you don't have to give an account for any of those sins because he will have paid for all of them, right? That, that next phrase in the song that we're going to sing here in a moment, there was a cup, a cup meant for me. The father raised his hand and looked down in peace. My cup of wrath he poured on his son who said, not my will but yours be done. This is the glorious thing. Jesus takes your cup of wrath that you it was your sins not the dude next to you not not the sins of the whole yours and he took your sins upon himself it's it's unfathomable right so that at that point all we have in that in that image right is just our name written in the book of life is that crazy it's not Oh, here's all the sins on the one side. And on the other side, oh, all your good deeds to show that somehow you deserve it. No, no, no. The only thing recorded in that singular book is what? Your name. 
Is that unbelievable? And so even just the other day, we're, we're doing the same uh, Bible reading through, uh, Jack. Uh, John 10, the good shepherd, this is so cool. The good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads it. So you know what I think might happen when you blend these all together? I think on that day, it's not just that he opens up the book of life. He calls us one by one, and we're like, oh, dude, that's, that's me. I'm, I'm, you know what I mean? Like, it, it's not even just some mass kind of communal thing. No, it's come, come. You, and he calls me by name and beckons me in because he knows the sins that I committed and took them on himself willingly, gladly, so that I can be set free. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed my transgressions from me in that, in that day. That glorious, glorious day. Guys, I want to end by having us uh, look at John 3, 16. Because this is, this is our hope. There's a judgment day, but I want you to hear this. One of the most familiar verses in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish. Will not have to give an account for all of this. Will not have to drink down the cup of wrath that they deserve. Will not perish, but have eternal life. Welcome. Welcome into eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Guys, the, the creed is like a big arrow pointing us to this major thread through the Bible. Answering the most important questions that are resonating, all echoing around in your soul and mind. Where did I come from? Guys, we're not some biological accident. The maker of heaven and earth breathed life into you. You're here because there's a maker and a father What's required of me in the present? To believe. To believe that that father sent his only begotten son. Why? To rescue you and me. Because we're filling up our cup. We are filling up our books. How many volumes do we each have, right? To believe that Jesus Christ was sent to remove your sin so that when you stood on judgment day, nobody's more shocked than you or me that my name gets called and I'm like, wow, but What's required for that to happen? That today, today, you would believe that it's true. Jesus Christ came. He died. He rose again for you. Which then leads to that last question. What's my future? Well, you're standing at the crossroads. What you decide today determines that future. We've got a choice. But what kind of choice? What a glorious choice. Oh, let's choose Jesus and live. Will you stand with me? Because I'd love for us to pray this out together. Oh, man, let's, let's bow together in prayer. And we are going to sing that incredible song together. But for now, Lord Jesus... Lord, even every person that's present here this morning is not here by accident. I know that, Lord. And you're putting before us this glorious and 
most frightening truth. But even as you do, just your, your grace, your kindness, your invitation is just all over it, Lord. Oh, God, I, I pray, would, would this be a day of life for some who have wandered through these doors and suddenly are coming to encounter you? It's as if my voice has just trailed off and, and they know they're standing before you. Lord, would this be a day of life, freedom, forgiveness, happiness, deep happiness. And Jesus, even for some of us who have known this truth and, and you've saved us, oh Lord, fill our hearts with wonder all over again. This is an unbelievable story, a story that I've somehow stepped into by your grace, Lord. Don't allow us to take another moment without just thanking you, worshiping you. Jesus, we love you. Not because we discovered you, but because you came for us. We, we love you because you first loved us, and now we're receiving it and reflexively saying, oh, Jesus, we love you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.